Well, last words are an interesting phenomenon. Granted, in a variety of cases, for a variety of ways, last words might not necessarily be recalled. But when they are said with an awareness that death is approaching or that the words that are spoken might in fact be the person's last words that they are going to speak, I find it interesting how they could reveal many things. I find it interesting how they might reveal wisdom when they might reveal love or faith or fear, perhaps the absence of fear in a good way or perhaps the absence of fear in a bad way. They could reveal many things, the last words of people. They could reveal frivolity. They could reveal peace. They could reveal many things. There are those like Voltaire who is said to have said, I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell. Oh Christ, oh Jesus Christ. Now those kind of words connote fear. They connote despair. And then there are those, others, like the actress Joan Crawford, who is said to have yelled at her housekeeper who was praying for her and is said to have said to her, don't you dare ask God to help me. Then there are those like Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, the woman who was a racist woman and thought that she could help breed the human race to be better by eliminating certain peoples from the human race. Her last words are said to have been, a party, let's have a party. And in the words of the famous football coach, Vince Lombardi, who is said to have told his wife, Marie, happy anniversary, I love you, right before he died. So there, right there, you have an assortment. From fear and despair to an absence of godly fear, even the presence of defiance, to frivolity, to marital affection. Then I think you have other words which ring of true peace and hope. They are, I would argue, in a different category. The words of believers when they have had the wherewithal and the grace of God in a given moment to speak words knowingly that they were going to be the last words at least to some degree or another. Martin Luther is said to have said, Our God is the God from whom cometh salvation. God is the Lord by whom we escape death. And some words that are among my favorite last words ever spoken, not including, of course, spirit-inspired words, like the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, it is finished, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But among those who are fallen men who have been redeemed, the words of John Knox are among my favorite last words. Before he died, he is said to have said, live in Christ, die in Christ, and the flesh need not fear death. Oh, how that sums up so much. Live in Christ, die in Christ, and the flesh need not fear death. As Gordon Ketty has stated, it is in the face of death that a living faith in Jesus Christ shines most brightly in the depths of the Christian's being. Now what we have here before us is in a different category than even that. What we have here before us are spirit-inspired last words. You're getting to read those words that are among the Spirit-inspired last words of David. Now granted, we'll see, I'll make a little nuance with what David says in 1 Kings chapter 2 and the words that he speaks to Solomon there. We'll get there in a moment, but you get to read words here that are the last words of David, and they're not just merely David's last words. Think about this. David, who was used mightily by God throughout his life, the man who functioned as an oracle and as a prophet, and not only as a king, Here he is on his deathbed, or it's basically we assume that's where he would be at this moment, and he is still being used by God as an oracle of God, speaking the very words of God. And what an example he is for us in that, that even on his deathbed, he's speaking words carried along by the Holy Spirit that are edifying, that I'm going to argue are directed towards his Redeemer. And what a model that is for Christians Now, I'm not being morbid in saying this. It's a reality that if Jesus does not return, each one of us will have a point in time where we will die. That's not morbid or pessimistic. That's just realistic. And it behooves every Christian to know that when that moment comes, to seek like the Apostle Paul sought, to honor Christ, whether in life or in death, and to speak words that are God-honoring and edifying for those around to hear when that day should come, if Christ does not return before that day comes. 
Now, as we get into this text, you're going to see uh, this word here is a prophecy. It will remind us of David's hope and desire, and it is edifying and instructive to us. It's a fitting component, as we get into the text, it's a fitting component to this section of the epilogue. Remember, in 2 Samuel, when you get to 2 Samuel 21, so begins the epilogue. Six episodes are found in this epilogue. Interestingly, in a Hebraic, chiastic structure. What does that mean? It's simply a poetic way of saying the inspired narrator is communicating something with the way he structured these six episodes. Episode number one and episode number six run parallel. Both are episodes of expiation. The expiation that needed to take place in light of Saul's sin and the murdering of the Gibeonites. And the expiation that needed to take place in light of David taking a census that he shouldn't have taken. Then, you see if in episode 2 and episode 5, you see parallels as well. Parallels that are essentially military annals and episodes of great accomplishments wrought by David's mighty men. Lord willing, we'll see another one next week, even as we saw one last week. But then in the middle, and this is so interesting, in Hebrew chiasms, where you have this, follow me, A, B, C, C, B, A structure, where 1 and 6 parallel, and episodes 2 and 5 parallel. One of the reasons why the inspired narrator is doing that, I would argue, is because in the middle of a Hebrew chiasm, you often have that which is accented. They didn't like bold things in those days. They didn't italicize things. So they would communicate emphasis in different ways. Repetition was one way. Hebrew chiasms were another way. Very interesting. If you go into the book of Ruth, you would find in the middle of this short little chiasm, when Ruth is speaking to Naomi, right in the middle of this expression, this Hebrew chiastic expression, is her confession of faith right in the middle. As though to communicate, you're hearing things from Ruth, but in the middle is something of immense importance. It's accented, if you will. Well, in the middle of this epilogue, you have David looking back retrospectively. That's 2 Samuel 22. He's looking back at his life. And he's seen the way Yahweh has rescued him. And then in 2 Samuel 23, I would argue, you have David looking forward to the one in whom was bound up all of his salvation. And it's as though the inspired narrator is saying, here's the epilogue, six episodes that kind of wrap up David's life. But right in the middle of this epilogue, you see David looking back to Yahweh's faithfulness, and you see David looking forward to the coming Redeemer. Wow. That's commentary right there. Ready? Wow. (laughs) I would bold that. I would italicize that if I couldn't construct the chiasm to communicate that. Well, Let's make our way into the text and we'll see the way in which David's last words look ahead to the coming one that would come, the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. But before we get there, we begin in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 1, where we read, Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist. Of Israel. So in the first line of verse 1, we read, now these are the last words of David. Now somebody might ask at this point, okay, how are we to understand then the chronology between these last words of David and the last words of David found in 1 Kings 2, where he is giving some parting instruction to his son Solomon? Well, I think there are essentially two answers to this. One, you could note, as many commentators have noted, that this likely functioned as a last official public statement. That David functioning as a king and as a prophet is issuing forth this public statement. And the second thing that I would say is that it is possible that these words were spoken by David from his deathbed, perhaps after he had given the parting words that he did in concluding instructions to his son Solomon. In one way or another, it's not difficult to reconcile at all. But these are the last words of David. Now, before we get to the prophecy, however, we are reminded of some important facts of David's history. So in line 2 of verse 1, notice it says, Thus says David, the son of Jesse. So we're reminded of David's humble beginnings. He was David, the son of Jesse. You know, when there was news of his birth, so to speak, I don't think it traveled much further than his 
immediate family. You don't get any suggestion that there were necessarily bells and whistles surrounding David's birth. Being the youngest of Jesse's children, he was, yes, the son of Jesse. And while we don't know much about Jesse, when you look at the question that Saul asked Abner in 1 Samuel 17, when Jesse, when David had stepped up to battle Goliath, we see Saul ask Abner, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner's response was, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So you get the sense that David came from at least relative obscurity. David had humble or unremarkable beginnings, you might say. And it was out of that relatively obscure family, living in a relatively obscure place at the time, and that's the soil by which God would call, and the soil out of which God would call forth Israel's greatest king outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by way of reminder, I just want to just remind you as a New Testament Christian, it's par- as a New Testament Christian, it's paradigmatic of how God often works. Remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul told believers, those believers who we know are called up to places of nobility to sit in heavenly places with Christ, that not that they were not wise according to the flesh, not many mighty and not many noble. So God has a paradigmatic way here of reminding us that He takes people from humility, from obscurity, from being unknown, and raises them up to the highest place to sit with Christ in heavenly places. More about that as we look at this next line. We read, Thus says the man raised up on high, Now, although Jesse was not a king, he was from the line of Judah. And remember, according to the prophecy of Jacob, when Jacob was blessing his children, the scepter was not to depart from Judah. So the fact that Jesse was from the line of Judah and the fact that David was from Jesse meant that David was eligible for the kingship in light of being descended from Jesse, who was descended from Judah. And so he could be such a one that was raised up on high to be the king of Israel who was from the line of Judah. He's the man who was raised up on high. David didn't raise himself up. He went from shepherding the flock of his father Jesse to being made a shepherd over God's people, Israel, to use language from 2 Samuel 5.2, not because he campaigned and usurped like Absalom did, not because he tried to steal the throne like Adonijah did, but because God called him and chose him and raised him up. And again, not to be self-centric, but Christians could be reminded of their calling in this regard. It is the grace of God and the sovereignty of God by which you have been raised up. You just look at Ephesians 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins. But you go to verse 6 of chapter 2 and you find that you have been raised up to sit together in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. You're not David and you don't have the unique calling that David did. But David was raised up, and you could say, that reminds me of what God has done in me. He raised me up to sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Third, David is identified here as the anointed of the God of Jacob. Now, when you hear those words, the anointed of the God of Jacob, I would encourage you to think of at least two things. Think called and and empowered. The fact that he was anointed by God meant that he was called by God. Remember, God sent Samuel to anoint David, and we see that in 1 Samuel 16, because he was called to be king and he was called by God. But we remember that when he was anointed by Samuel, and that oil flowed upon him, which was representative of the Holy Spirit, we're told in 1 Samuel 16 that from that day forward, the Holy Spirit came upon him. So when you see that word anointed, you're thinking called and empowered. And at least for one more time, I'm going to do this just to remind you, you are anointed. Don't let false teachers on TV make you think that the anointed are a special subset of Christians of whom they are one and you are not. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20 makes it very clear. Speaking to the church, you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you go on in verse 27, we're told, the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you. So it's a good reminder, Christian, you too have been called by God and you too have been empowered by God for service. Not to do the same things that David did, but to do what Christ has called you to do in the here and now. You have been called and you have been empowered. And then we have this fourth 
um, designation, this fourth identification, in which we're reminded of the unique contribution that David made to Israel. Outside of the kingship and outside of military exploits, he was identified as the sweet psalmist of Israel. That word sweet could be rendered as pleasant or delightful, the pleasant or delightful, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, you might have heard that in the past. You might have heard, you know, somebody say that. Maybe, maybe me or maybe another preacher. And you probably thought, like, you know, that's probably like an expression from, like, Charles Spurgeon that just kind of, like, stood the test of time and preachers have just kind of said that throughout the years, the sweet psalmist of Israel, not realizing it comes from the text. That's the idea of the text, the sweet or delightful, pleasant psalmist of Israel. David was gifted for service in that way, to write songs that were pleasant, God-honoring, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Who knows what it would have sounded like to hear David play the harp, for instance. He could compose musical literature, as it were. He could compose the arrangement for songs and the words that would be sung. And they would be sung by Israel for generations. They would be sung by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the words of the Psalms have been sung by Christians for years. Hundreds and hundreds of years. So what we have in verse 1 is a fourfold description of David and what follows. To use language from Alexander McLaren is a fourfold description of the divine source of David's oracles. In verse 2 and in the beginning of verse 3 we read, The Spirit of the Lord, or notice the capital letters, Yahweh spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. Now notice the emphasis here. Oh, there is noticeable emphasis here. David functioned not only as a king, he functioned as a prophet. Just by way of reminder, you can see this from the text, it would be wrong to think of the words of Scripture as merely the words of men. Yes, the instrumentality of human beings were employed. God included the personality, the experiences, and the writing styles of different writers in the Scriptures. They were not independent, though. They wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Look at the first line. The Spirit of Yahweh spoke by me, and His Word was on my tongue. This is a witness to divine inspiration. Yahweh spoke, spoke through David, by David. And how did He speak? Notice the right in the text. Through David's speech and through David's writing. His word was on David's tongue. On David's tongue was not ultimately David's words, but ultimately Yahweh's word. Now a quick note here. Good reminder. The Old Testament and New Testament both witness to this reality of inspiration. And I'll explain what I mean by that word briefly. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we are told that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. More literally, all Scripture is God-breathed. So when we talk about inspiration, we're getting that idea of God breathing out the Scripture so that the Word is the result of God's creative breath. All Scripture is God-breathed. Same kind of idea that you have here in 2 Samuel 23, 2. The Spirit of Yahweh spoke by me. His Word was on my tongue. So if you were to say, okay, well then, how did that actually happen? Okay, we get the result. The result is that the word is the result of God's creative breath, if you will. It's God breathed. But how did it happen? And I think Peter put it well. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, where we read, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation or of private origin, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So we have a witness to divine inspiration. That's how it happened. Men were carried along, moved. That word in the Greek speaks of being carried along so that the result was God's creative breath. Now you can go through the New Testament. It's rather interesting to see all the testimonies to David having been a prophet of God, having speak, speaking by the Spirit in the New Testament. There's many. Jesus referred to Psalm 110. When David said, the Lord said unto my Lord, Jesus referred to that as David saying that in the Spirit. If you go to Acts chapter 1, Peter references how a prophecy spoken by David was that which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David. 
Acts chapter 1, verse 16. In Acts chapter 2, verse 30, Peter called David a prophet. In Acts chapter 4, verse 25, during prayer, the apostles said to God that it was by the mouth of his servant David that he said things like, why did the heathens rage and the people plot vain things? You can go on to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, and you see the writer of Hebrews is acknowledging that David spoke in the Spirit. So you have it here. You have the words of Jesus. You have Peter. You have the apostles. You have the writer of Hebrews. All of these witnesses to say, you're not just hearing the words of men. This is the Word of God. The result of divine inspiration. And it's emphasized here. Look, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. His Word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. A lot of emphasis there. You might ask, why the emphasis? I'll give you a reason in a moment. But first, just three concluding observations from uh, these verses. The first one would be this. I think we have here another good witness in the Old Testament of the personality of the Holy Spirit. Do not believe the lie of, say, Jehovah's Witnesses, who would say that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal, active force. No, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's a person. How do you know He's a person? Well, for instance, right here in the text, we're told He spoke. We're told in a place like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, as well as in the Old Testament, Isaiah 63, that He could be grieved. Impersonal objects don't grieve. As some of you have heard me say before, your TV does not cry when you do not watch it. When you leave your car, you know, parked. It doesn't say, oh, please turn me on so the battery doesn't die. I'm getting so upset. doesn't happen. Why? They're impersonal objects. They don't have feelings. But the Holy Spirit is a person. He could be grieved. And you can go on in the New Testament. So many examples of this. He intercedes, Romans 8.26. He teaches, John 14, verse 26. And the examples could go on. He is a person. Second, some say... I'm not convinced this is definitive, but some say we may have a witness to the Trinity in these verses in the Old Testament. Now, I think you go to a place like Isaiah 63 and you clearly have a witness to the Trinity. God is identified as Father in Isaiah 63. The angel of His presence, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, is there. And the Holy Spirit is there in Isaiah 63. Clear Old Testament reference to the Trinity. Here, well, the argument would be, you have the Spirit of the Lord referenced. That would be a reference to the Holy Spirit. The God of Israel would be a reference to the Father. And then arguably the Rock of Israel, a reference to the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. We know that in 1 Corinthians 10, for instance, Jesus is identified as the Rock that followed the people of Israel. And the third thing I want to call your attention to here is this is quite an introduction to the prophecy. So I'm going to give you an opinion here. I can't say this with definitude, but I'm going to give you an opinion. I think we are to note the emphasis. I think that much is clear. But what is the emphasis communicating? Is the emphasis communicating that what follows is simply a prescription of what kings ought to be like? Or does what follow follow, go beyond that? Is it a prophecy? And is this introduction... The repetition that Yahweh is speaking through David point to the fact that David is speaking about something so great and so grand as his great descendant who would come from him. The one who would come, the Lord Jesus Christ. I would argue that's what's in view for many reasons. I would argue the language that we're going to see in verse 3. So if there are those of you who are like me and you're like, well, how? What's the argument there? I'll give you these bullet points. You can listen to the message again and you can start to itemize them. Okay? The idea here is when you look at verse 3, you're going to see the language as I unpack it. I think a ruler is in view. When you look at verse 7, I think we have an eschatological reference to the judgment that happens when this ruler comes. When we look at verse 5, and David's referencing the covenant, the covenant speaks of the descendant who would come from him, and you're going to see something amazing. David knows that all of his salvation is bound up in this one. So between the emphasis, between the language in verse 3, the language in verse 5, and the language in verse 7, you'll see me unpack that as we go through, I think what's coming is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's get into it together. Second half of verse 3 and verse 4 read, He who rules over men, now notice in the rendering in your bulletin, must be is italicized, right? One of the things I love about reading the New King James 
is that it's telling you the translators added that because they were trying to help those who would be reading their rendering of the text. But if you read it without the italicized words there, it reads like this. He who rules over men, just. Reads differently. Not just simply prescriptively. We know that he who rules over men ought to be just. You can make that case in a whole bunch of places in the Old Testament. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, told Moses like he needed help. Like If you don't get help, Moses, you're going to burn out. And he told Moses to get people who would be basically leaders over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And he had to make sure, Moses did, that they were men that feared God, hated covetousness, and that they were men of truth. Jehoshaphat, when he was setting up people in um, the land of Judah that would judge, they had to be people that feared God. They had to be people that exercised integrity, not given to bribes. We see that in 2 Chronicles 19, verses 5, and you can go on through verse 7. Nehemiah said that he didn't tax the poverty-stricken people that were coming back to the land to rebuild the wall because he feared God. You see that Nehemiah says in Nehemiah chapter 7 that he put um, Hananani to be char- have charge over Jerusalem because, quote, he was a faithful man and he feared God more than many. So we know that that's there. It's a, a prescription that's found in the Scriptures. And just by way of reminder, I just want to say that anybody who does have a position of authority ought to rule in a just way. I do just want to make that point. I think it's worth remembering. If you have a position of leadership, whether that be in the civil sphere whether that be in the home, like a husband over a household, whether it be an employer or manager over employees, whatever it be, if you exercise authority, you are to do so with justice and your behavior, your righteous and right behavior ought to flow from, even as the second half of verse 3 speaks of, a fear of the Yahweh, a fear of Yahweh, a fear of God. And oh, the blessings that accompany that. We'll see that a little bit more in a moment. But I want to get to what I think this verse is saying. He who rules over men just. Second half of this, um, second half of verse 3, ruling in the fear of God, or it could be speaking of ruler fear of God, as one commentator renders it. So I think what we have here. It's kind of just abrupt reference among David's last words, speaking to this one who would come. That he is the one who is the one who rules over men, and he's just. And he is the one who is the ruler who rules out of a fear of God. Again, remember, I'm saying that because he's going to reference the Davidic covenant, which had everything to do with someone who would come from him, and he knew that the Christ was going to come from him, as we see in Acts chapter 2. He knew that was coming. And interestingly, when Jesus is prophesied about in the Old Testament, sometimes this kind of language is used to speak of him. God said through Jeremiah that he would raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king who would reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. God said through Isaiah that there would come forth a rod or a shoot from the stem of Jesse, and a branch would grow out from his roots. That's Isaiah 11, verse 1. And the Spirit of Yahweh would rest upon him. There's a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit there. The last description says the Spirit of the fear of Yahweh, of the fear of the Lord. And when you see, when you go on, interestingly, in that very chapter... We would see that Isaiah prophesied that his delight, this one that would come, speaking of the Messiah, he would rule justly in the fear of the Lord and with righteousness. You see that in Isaiah 11, verses 3 through 5. So what am I saying? I'm saying when David says here, he who rules over men just, ruling or ruler in the fear of God, that's language that's used to describe Jesus in other places in the prophetic works, in Jeremiah and in Isaiah. More about that as we go. But when you have this kind of ruler come, consider the metaphors that accompany such rule. In verse 4 we read, And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. 
So without going through the nuances of this verse and how the second half of it particularly is rendered in different translations, you get the gist of it. That when this righteous ruler comes, and principally speaking, when you have a righteous ruler exercising authority in his sphere of authority, you can expect these kind of things. What? People bloom. Like sun that shines on grass, like the rain that falls upon grass. And when you have that kind of thing happening, sun shining on grass, rain watering grass, sun coming after the rain, what you expect is for grass to grow. And the picture painted in verse 4 is very simple. When you have this kind of ruler, one who rules in the fear of Yahweh, one who rules with justice, then it's an environment, if you will, whereby people blossom, people grow, there is prosperity, there is health, there are things like peace. That's all of which is connoted in this metaphor. Now, ultimately, that's realized in the consummation of the kingdom. Jesus, during His first coming, inaugurated the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. And there are witnesses to this. I'll get to that in a moment. But the full realization of this happens when the kingdom is consummated and the king returns. But by way of principle, I want to apply this because I think this is so important. By way of principle, and I can make this case to you, that when you have righteous leadership in a home or in a church with a father among children, with a husband and wife as they train up their children, in a workplace, people bloom, principally speaking. I can make that case for you. I could take you to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, where Paul told Timothy to watch his life and doctrine closely. In doing so, you save both yourself and your hearers. I could take you to Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up your children in the way of the Lord. When they're older, they'll not depart. I could take you through the kings of the Old Testament. I could show you that when there were righteous kings in the Old Testament, good things happened in the land. People prospered. They celebrated the Passover. They worshipped the way that God had prescribed through David. Good things happened through godly kings. Really bad things happened and idolatry happened through bad kings. I could take you to an employer like Boaz in Ruth chapter 2 verse 4 and you see a rather unique workplace in Ruth chapter 2 verse 4. This man was such a godly man and you could see that in the way he greeted his employees, so to speak, and the way his employees greeted Greeted him. So what is the point I'm making to you? That not only from the principle in this verse, but I could take you to all of those scriptures to show you that when there is godly leadership, principally speaking, people bloom. In a land, in a church, in a family, in a workplace. Therefore, let me say by way of application to you, what area of authority has God given you in your life? If you are a manager, if you have management over employees, how will you exercise godly righteousness and justice and lead and manage out of the fear of Yahweh so that those under you will prosper and bloom as a result of your leadership? If you are a husband with responsibility to your wife and children, how will you lead in such a way, leading justly, so that you can train up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? And mothers, you come right alongside of this when you think of the responsibility to raise up children. How will you exercise your authority in a right way so that the children bloom and they grow? You can't make it happen, I know, but it's a principle in the Scriptures. It's up to God at the end of the day. But you can sow the seeds and you can wait for God to bring the rain. In a church, leadership must be exercised in a godly way. The Word of God must be preached and so on. And you can't expect as for God to use that instrument, instrumentation, to provide an environment of godly refreshment and godly growth. Even more, to apply the text more broadly, this principle of what happens when you see people living in this kind of way as described here, I think everybody, regardless of where you are, you ought to pursue to be a refreshment to others even as this godly ruler is described as being. And how do you do that? I think you take Micah chapter 6, verse 8. You do justly. You love mercy and you walk humbly with God. And you will be a refreshment by the grace of God to so many. You don't have to be a king or a pastor or a father or an employer to be a refreshment to others. You could be a refreshment wherever you are by the grace of God. And I think this would be my, maybe, thinking about this, the greatest motivation for that is because in doing so, per this text, you give people a little taste. Just a little, a little sip, if you will. A little morsel 
of what it's going to be like when the ultimate godly ruler comes. When you lead well and rule well, it gives people a little bit of a glimpse of what it's going to be like when Jesus Christ returns. And you think of how little people have tasted of this. Think about what people have experienced in being under the different governments of this world. Being under dictators or people who steal power in one way or another. People who oppress people. You think about people who have come from broken homes. You think about people who have come from churches and they've seen things that have disgusted them. People have tasted, if you, would, if you will, so little of this. You get to be, by the grace of God, in your sphere of responsibility, you get to give them a little taste of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes. Now, ultimately, what we have in verse 4, I would argue, was seen, follow this, in its inaugural form, in its inaugural form during Jesus' first coming. You got a taste of this during Jesus' first coming. When He came, those who sat in darkness saw a great light. Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, quoting from Isaiah. There were people who were afflicted with diseases, various torments, demon-possessed, epileptics, people who were paralytics, and the kingdom came and refreshment came. You had this in its inaugural form during Jesus' first coming. But you will have it in its consummated form. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and sits on the throne of His glory, Matthew 25, verse 31. Then the picture that's painted in verse 4 will be realized. I wonder, just a George wondering here, I wonder if David had a vision and caught a glimpse of the King who was coming and the regeneration of all things that occurs. The regeneration of the land, the topography changing, as described in Zechariah 14, for instance. Jesus described the regeneration of all things to His disciples when they would sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I wonder if He had a picture of sort of the land being rejuvenated. Well, that brings us to verse 5 here. Verse 5 reads like this, Although my house is not so with God, yet He has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will He not make it increase? Okay. First, let me give you the sense of what David is saying here. He's essentially saying, if you look at this verse, that from his house, look at the beginning of the verse, or you could render it like this, or despite his house, a just ruler would come. The one described in verse 3 and the attendant blessings that accompany His coming, verse 4, would indeed come because of the everlasting covenant that God made with Him. A covenant that is sure, a covenant upon which His eternal welfare rested, and God would make it spring up and come forth in its due time. This is amazing. I will break down some of the details very briefly for you. The first line, you could look at different translations. Some render it differently. Although my house is not so with God, you could see it in the ESV rendered differently. For does not my house stand so with God? The Septuagint renders it the way it is here in the New King James. And if it is like that, either way it's the same thing. Either way David is saying this or that. He's either saying, it's going to happen because God has chosen my house and my lineage through which the Messiah would come. And per the rendering here, even though my house isn't what I just depicted in prophecy to you, it's still going to happen in the future. Think about David looking at his house as he's preparing to die. He saw what happened with one of his sons raping one of his daughters. He had a son, Absalom, usurp the throne. Adonijah would seek to steal the throne. And then when he thought about Solomon, you wonder how he could think about Solomon without recalling the fact that, she was, that he was born from Bathsheba who had been the wife of Uriah and everything that went through that. David's rule was a great rule in so many ways, but it wasn't the perfect just rule. It didn't bring all the accompanying blessings that were described in verse 4. So I think it's very appropriate to think that David is saying here, although my house is not this, although my house is not so with God, I have not been the perfect and ideal ruler. 
yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. He's going back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, where God told David, God had promised to him that there would come forth one from him who would reign. Verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7 reads, As your house and your kingdom, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the everlasting covenant that David is referring to. You could read the entirety of it in verses 12 through 16. But he's saying, not because my house is great. God had chosen me and He chose my house that from my house there would come the Messiah. It's because of the everlasting covenant. You look at the next line, ordered in all things and secure. As one commentator put it, that's legal terminology stressing the validity of the covenant. It's as though God had crossed the T's and dotted the I's. God would make sure it would come about. And notice what David wrote. For this is all my salvation and my desire. David knew his eternal well-being and his welfare was bound up not in his performance, but in this covenant. This is where my salvation is. In the fact that there will come this just ruler from me. The one. David saw his day. David saw that he was going to be resurrected from the dead. You look at Acts chapter 2, Psalm 16. David saw that this one would come from his body. He saw that this one would ascend to the throne. He saw that this one would rise from the dead. He knew his salvation was bound up in him. And then he says, will he not make it increase? Or you could render it, will he not cause it to spring forth? Interestingly, David used a metaphor that would become perpetually associated with him. That phrase, will he not make it increase? It could be rendered as, will he not cause it to spring forth? And he's using language here that's used in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, where the messianic branch, Jesus in the prophecy, is often described as the branch the branch of David. He's that one who would spring forth and come. And he, in Zechariah 6.12, we're told that the branch would branch out. Increase. Same word that's used here. He would branch out. He would increase. And he would build the temple of Yahweh. And that is what Jesus is doing. He is building the New Testament temple. He's building His church. He would spring forth. Just as a quick note, because I think this is rather... Amazing and interesting. Remember how Isaiah described Jesus in his prophecy in Isaiah 53 at the beginning. He described Jesus as coming, that suffering servant who would come, who would be made an offering for sin so that sinners like us could be forgiven. He said that he would be as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Now, there are so many ways in which Jesus sprouted out out of dry ground. But arguably, the ground was most dry with respect to the Davidic monarchy. You've read the Scriptures. You see what happens. The Davidic monarchy falls. And you're like, Where, where's the king? I thought there was going to be a king who was going to keep sitting on the throne of David. What happened to the monarchy? It got decimated. It's like a tree that got cut down. Then all of a sudden there would be this branch, this root that would come from the stump of Jesse. Out of dry ground, God could make it grow anywhere. And out of the dry ground of a falling Davidic monarchy, God would cause Christ to spring forth. Why? He had made an everlasting covenant. Hallelujah. As one commentator put it, he would, quote, be a fresh sprout from the stump of a tree that has been felled, i.e. from the destroyed Davidic monarchy. But despite all that, God caused it to grow. He made a covenant. And despite all the odds being stacked against him and never changed the likelihood of success, it was always 100%. And that brings us to verses 6 and 7, the closing of this prophecy. In verses 6 and 7 we read, but the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. 
Now, if you're reading through this or hearing this, you might think to yourself, who in the world would not love this kind of rain as described in verse 4? Like, who wouldn't want this? It's beautiful. Who wouldn't want it? You live in a world where everyday experience reminds you that most people do not want this king and do not want his kingdom. And apart from the grace of God, you wouldn't and I wouldn't either. The scripture tells us very clearly that by nature we love darkness rather than light. We all would say we will not have this man to reign over us, to use language from Luke chapter 19. And here we get a little glimpse of specific individuals in this prophecy who will be outside of the kingdom. You get that language in verse 6. They shall be as thorns thrust away. They're described as sons of rebellion, more literally sons of Belial. That's the idea of them just being kind of given to godlessness. Some render it as worthlessness. And whereas the just ruler brings life and growth, these ones bring pain. They're like thorns. They're like thorns that a man cannot remove and not touch. Like you just can't touch them. You need some sort of instrument to remove these things. That's the picture here. And it's pointing to the justice of God being demonstrated towards such ones when the Lord Jesus returns on that day, when the kingdom is consummated. You get that language at the end of verse 7, and they shall be utterly be burned with fire in their place. That's Old Testament and New Testament imagery for the day of judgment. I mean, you see that in Zechariah 14. You see that in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. You see that in a bunch of places. That's Old Testament and New Testament terminology for judgment. We know that the Lord will gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And these ones are as thorns. They, they are, as one commentator put it, too prickly and sharp, and sharp-pointed for gentle dealing. These individuals must be done away with definitively according to God's justice. One more application here, because I think this is worth us being reminded of, especially in the day in which we're living, that the modern-day ruler or the present-day DA, whoever it might be that has authority, and treats criminals as though they were toddlers, are causing pain in society. And they would do well to be reminded that according to places like 1 Peter chapter 2, Romans chapter 13, a principal responsibility of those who are in authority is to punish evil. They have all kinds of problems in a society when evil is called good. Now that just kind of turns the whole paradigm on its head, but it doesn't change the fact that rulers and those in positions of authority, whether they're rulers or DAs, are supposed to punish evil. And when prison becomes a kind of revolving door for criminals to kind of walk in and walk out and continue to do whatever they were doing before they went into prison, those who are in responsibilities of justice and fail to execute justice, they make it known that they are in wicked opposition to the God of the universe. A just ruler punishes evil. And it is folly for them to think that God will treat them as they have treated other criminals. Their injustice will not make the God of the universe unjust. He exercises holy justice. They will, if they do not repent, join the thorns mentioned here, or the chaff mentioned in Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, that is too described as being burnt up with fire. Please make no mistake, it's a serious thing in the sight of God. To be someone in a position of authority and to not exercise that authority righteously, but to exercise it wickedly, is heinous opposition. It's raising one's fist against God and saying, I will not rule the way you prescribe. I am not your minister according to the righteousness that you prescribe in Romans 13. I am not. And God will deal with such ones. I want to close by saying this. Here you have the last words of David, as we're told. And I want you to be reminded as one commentator put it, of the great divide between the saved and the unsaved in time and all eternity. David knew, in one of the most poignant places that you could ever see it, David knew that his eternal welfare, his salvation, was bound up in the everlasting covenant that God made with him. That there would come one from him who would be the Messiah and the Christ. He knew that God had sworn an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne. Acts chapter 2, verse 30. He also foreseeing spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 31, referencing Psalm 16. 
I just want to encourage you in closing to believe looking back what David believed looking forward. Believe that all your salvation and all your eternal well-being is bound up in David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not bound up in your performance. It's not bound up in your works. It's bound up in one. It's bound up in His Son who died in the place of sinners like you and me. It's bound up in His greater Son, the one who was both the root of David and the offspring of David. The one who preceded David and the one who proceeded from David. The one who was the Son of David and the Son of God. All of your eternal being is bound up in Him. What will you do with Him? Do you look to Him? Even as David looked to Him in faith, do you look to Him looking back to the work that He has done? And do you look to Him in faith? Do you know that all your salvation is bound up in Him? And if you have come to Him, do you know that you are secure? Because God has made with you an everlasting covenant. You're in it, if you are a Christian. It's called the new covenant. Secured in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. David looked ahead and he called... Jesus, Lord. He said, the Lord said unto my Lord. Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. If you will be saved, you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Look back and say what David said even as he looked forward in faith and confessed Jesus as Lord. David knew and described the blessedness of the man to whom God imparts righteousness apart from works. Romans 4, verse 6. Know that forgiveness of sins is not secured by your performance, but through the blood of Jesus Christ. His life, death, and resurrection. Confess Him as Lord. Turn away from your sin and self-righteousness. And be assured that your eternal well-being is secure in Him. Now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for this amazing prophecy, Lord. We thank You for Your words, Lord, as, as we see them in this text. And even as we make our way through some of the, the nuances of this text, we thank You for the way in which You speak through Your Word. And Father, we pray that Your Word would continue to renew our minds, that we might hunger and desire Christ, even as David so desired, among all the things that he could have asked for, that thing that he wanted above all else was to see Your beauty and to dwell in Your tent all the days of His life. Father, in light of such beauty, would You work in us such desire, Lord. If all of our salvation is bound up in Your Son, we're asking afresh in light of Your truth, would You fan the flames of our desire for Your Son? And would You find us as those, not with wavering affection or waning affection, but even among our imperfection, Lord, might You find our affection growing for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the bridegroom that You've given to us, that great Messiah that You promised would come and has secured our salvation. Lord, I pray that there would not be anyone in this place who would be among those thorns that are going to be cast out, who rebel against Your rule and will not receive Your Son as Lord and Savior. Father, if there would be anyone in this place now, may You by Your grace lead them to see even as David saw that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He died for sinners like us and that He rose from the grave so that our salvation could be secure. May it be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.